FairHealth for Older Adults understands that healthcare decisions are life-changing decisions, strategic decisions, shared decisions. FairHealthForOlderAdults.org provides financial and educational information for older adults and caregivers planning for a treatment, procedure, or ongoing condition. FairHealth for Older Adults, healthy decisions for healthy aging. Explore FairHealthOlderAdults.org today. Campaign generously funded by the John A. Hartford Foundation. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 373, in Purgatory Shadow. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, it is our mission to explore the morals, meanings, and messages of each and every episode of Star Trek, no matter where it takes us, no matter what dangers lay ahead. This week, in Purgatory's Shadow, the one where Garrick lies. No, not not that one. Oh, uh, or that other time, or the... Or that one time that... Well, uh, look, let, let's just say that he's someone who is very hard to trust. We'll get into the trivia and the story in a moment, just after I tell you all how to not get in touch with us. That's a lie. But you have to practice, remember, mm, yeah, and become a good liar. Good, good practice. Yeah. But this is the truth. Mission Log relies on your participation. So that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful, and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, here's John Champion, who may or may not be telling you the truth with this week's trivia. I'll do my best. This week in Purgatory's Shadow, written by Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf, and these two originally had some different ideas about where to go with their prison break story. Originally, it would have followed up on Michael Eddington, who we just left one episode ago. Ira and Robert were inspired by The Great Escape, which is awesome, by the way, if you haven't seen it. 1963, Steve McQueen, James Garner, Charles Bronson, and many, many, many more uh, trying to break out of a Nazi POW camp. There is a story element here that needs to get credited to someone else, though. That would be Star Trek novelist Judy Class. She's the one who had the idea to make Tane Garrick's father. While she doesn't get a credit on the show, she did later get paid for her contribution. Uh, that's thanks to Renee Echeverria, who uh, earmarked her special contribution. And this was directed by Gabrielle Beaumont. Hey, remember Gabrielle? She got her start directing TV in her native England, even doing a couple of episodes of the original Tomorrow People in the 80s, she started on American TV shows, which led to seven episodes of TNG and making her the first woman to direct for the franchise. 
This is her only DS9 episode, but she will be back for more when we catch up with her on Voyager. You'll notice at the beginning of this episode the dedication to Derek Garth. He was a lighting grip, and tragically, he died in an automobile accident on his way to work on this episode. And yes, this is the first in a two-parter, so we'll have to leave you hanging a little bit until next week. And this was pretty calculated to reintroduce some story elements and tie up some others at the mid-season point for DS9. Um, Ira knew that he wanted to get back to the Dominion storyline, and this, in his estimation, was the way to do it. Now let's talk about guest stars. Gold Ducat's daughter is back. This time it's Melanie Smith appearing as Torres Zial. Yes, that's the third actor in the role, but it's cool. We will see more of Melanie as Zial. She will stick around for five more episodes. So no more new names there, at least. And prior to Star Trek, you may have caught Melanie in recurring roles on both Seinfeld and Melrose Place, to name a couple. Since DS9, she turns up again on Curb Your Enthusiasm and in a recurring spot on The Division. We meet a Jim Hadar, the commandant of the prison asteroid named Ikat Ika. Here, he's played by James Horan. And we mentioned James way back in season six of TNG when he played Jobril in the episode Suspicions. He then appeared in Descent Part Two. And guess what? He keeps coming back. This and the next episode are his only DS9 appearances, but he will turn up in Voyager and then for a much longer run in Enterprise. And welcome back to a few powerhouse Star Trek guest actors. Of course, we get to see Mark Alimo as Gold Ducat, and then there's J.G. Hertzler as Martok, again, for the first time again. What? Did we just see his changeling alter ego get fried not that long ago? Stick around. And then... In his last performance as Anabrintain, the legendary Paul Dooley. I just wanted to make one small point about James Horan. I actually had a chance to meet him not too long ago. Did you? At the Highlander 25th anniversary television uh, convention, he was one of the legendary characters named Grayson uh, in Highlander. And believe it or not, I spent more time talking to him about his character in the Orville... (laughs) Rather than, than in Highlander. In, in Highlander. And, of course, as Joe Brill. Yeah, this is awesome. Because being a Star Trek yes. fan, he is a wonderful man, a uh, fantastic actor, and I don't know if you know this or not, but a very uh, enthusiastic country singer performer. I had read that, yes. And, you know, unfortunately, we won't hear any of that on Star Trek, but we can keep our fingers crossed for a future series. <laughs> Am I the only one who's disappointed now that we already know there won't be a singing Jem Hadar in this episode? Prologue Major Kira and Odo are hard at work in his quarters trying to get Odo's life back in order. The life of a changeling again, that is. As they sift through boxes and furniture, Kira stumbles across one of Odo's pads, which contains a self-help book on how to find the perfect mate. Trying to explain away the embarrassment of why he was entertaining such notions of romantic folly when still a solid, Odo is saved by the proverbial calm chirp from Dax. Upon arriving in Ops, both Kira and Odo are informed that a coded Cardassian message was intercepted in the Gamma Quadrant, but has yet to be decrypted. 
and there is only one person on the station with the ability to do so, as Cisco orders Dax to send for Mr. Garrick. Later, in the replimat, Garrick explains to Dr. Bashir and Torres Zial that the message was simply a five-year-old planetary survey signal and not an attempt by survivors from the lost Cardassian fleet who Garrick claims are gone and are never coming back. As Garrick takes his leave, he later tries to commandeer a runabout and is met with, and somewhat pleased by, awaiting an armed Dr. Bashir. Act 1 Garrick is pleased that Bashir has become so distrustful and suspicious over these past five years, as Bashir credits him for being a good teacher. Garrick admits that the code is in fact a distress signal from Anabrintain, who somehow survived the counterattack by the Dominion when his fleet assaulted their supposed homeworld. Tempting and adventurous as it may seem to violate Starfleet orders and help Garrick find his former mentor, Bashir insists at the point of a phaser for Garrick to explain the entire situation to Captain Sisko. In Sisko's office, Garrick assures the captain that the coded message is genuine, as he and Tane created this specific code together. The message repeated one word over and over again, alive, to which Garrick presumes that Tane survived, and many others, including Starfleet personnel lost in the Gamma Quadrant, also who may still be alive. Garrick proclaims that this would be a mission of mercy, to which Sisko reluctantly agrees, and has the perfect person in mind to accompany Garrick into the Gamma Quadrant, and to his chagrin, it is not Dr. Bashir. As Dax paces furiously in Worf's quarters, he explains that even though she is his Parmakai, he needs not explain away why he is heading into danger with Garrick. All he requires from Dax is for her to wish him a good death. In typical Dax fashion, she instead takes all of his opera files, kisses him deeply, wishes him a good death, and urges him to hurry back, if he wants to make sure she doesn't lose any of his operas. Meanwhile in Quarks, Garrick is sharing a similar moment with Zial, as he assures her that he will be coming back from this mission. However, as they share a private moment of affection, Goldicott violently wrenches Garrick from the table, only to be disarmed by Quark and Zial, who defuse Dukat's anger. Dukat tells his daughter that his ship was damaged in battle, and admits, after seeing her and Garrick together, they have much to discuss. As final preparations are being made to the runabout, Sisko reminds Worf that this is a recon mission, and to keep a close eye on Garrick, to which Worf replies, At the first sign of betrayal, I will kill him. Act 2. As Worf and Garrick make their way further into Dominion space, Worf is subjected to Garrick's incessant filibustering about wanting to apply to Starfleet Academy, citing that Starfleet would be fortunate to have a man of his talents. Knowing that he is being made the fool, Worf doesn't understand why Garrick continued the ruse, to which he gleefully confesses that lying, like any skill, must be practiced constantly. On the station, Goldicott barges in on Kira's off-duty relaxation with a coffee after a busy day. Dukat is furious with Kira and blames her for Zial spending so much time with Garrick, a man who he believes is poisoning Zial's mind against him. Kira retorts that Zial is a grown woman who can make her own choices, even if Kira disagrees with Zial keeping company with a man like Garrick. 
Dukat storms out, leaving behind a veiled threat that he will never forget Kira's betrayal of his trust. Back on the runabout, Garrick's verbal displeasure with his Earl Grey tea is interrupted as he observes that they have dropped out of warp. Worf tells him that he has clear orders not to proceed further into Dominion space, increasing the risk of coming into contact with the Dominion. However, Garrick isn't one to give up so easily, and he appeals to Worf's sense of Cleon honor to do the right thing, the honorable thing, which is finding not only Tane, but his fellow Starfleet officers who have gone missing in the Gamma Quadrant. As they use a nearby nebula to try and mask their presence, the runabout sensors lock onto a massive Dominion fleet directly ahead of them. Act 3 Worf and Garrick try to outmaneuver the pursuing Dominion fleet, but they are simply too fast and too many. Knowing that capture is imminent, Worf sends a distress signal to Deep Space Nine, hoping to warn Captain Sisko that the Dominion fleet is massing for invasion. As the runabout is caught in a tractor beam, several armed Jem'Hadar soldiers beam aboard. Garrick tries to silver-tongue his way out of the situation, only to be met with the butt-end of a rifle, knocking him out. On the station, Kira, Dax, and Chief O'Brien share a very brief yet joyful moment about baby Kiriyoshi as they are suddenly interrupted when Worf's Priority One signal arrives. Dax and O'Brien try and clean up the garbled communication, only to decode three words, Jem'Hadar, build-up, and imminent. To make matters worse, Kira informs Sisko that she also just lost contact with two Starfleet listening posts. Sisko orders for Starfleet Command to be notified and the station to be placed on yellow alert. He also wants Kira to take the Defiant into the Gamma Quadrant to find Worf and confirm if his message is accurate. If so, the Dominion invasion has begun. Meanwhile, deep within an unknown asteroid, Worf and Garrick, along with several Jem'Hadar soldiers, beam into what appears to be a detention facility. Once again, Garrick tries to smooth-talk his way out of this dire situation, only to be choked silent by the Jem'Hadar in charge. He clearly states that both Garrick and Worf are prisoners and enemies of the Dominion, and there is no escape except death. Act 4. Sisko informs his crew that another listening post has gone dead as an incoming ship arrives through the wormhole. It is the Defiant, with a message from Major Kira, with a one-word report on what she has found. Trouble, with a capital T, and that rhymes with D, and that stands for Dominion. Meanwhile, waiting outside of the Bajoran Temple, Dukat sees Zial leave the services and pulls her aside, telling her that she has to leave the station for her own safety. He informs her that he knows the Dominion fleet is heading for the wormhole and that the station is no longer safe. On the prison asteroid, Garrick and Worf are processed and are reminded that there is no escape unless to take their chances surviving the vacuum of space on a totally barren rock. The Jem'Hadar leader, Ikatika, quips that he's been waiting for another Klingon, which puzzles Worf but his questions are answered when he discovers a battered and beaten General Martok trying to survive brutal combat in a Jem'Hadar fighting pit. After the duel, Worf helps Martok to his feet, telling him that he is in fact Worf, son of Moog. Understanding this, Martok realizes that the Cardassian stranger must be Garrick and tells him, He said you would come.
Martok escorts Worf and Garrick to the prison barracks where Tane is resting, as Martok informs them that his heart is failing. Upon seeing Garrick, their reunion isn't what Garrick had in mind, as Tane is far from gracious or even thankful that his protege came to save him. Meanwhile, in the wardroom, Dukat joins Sisko, Dax, O'Brien, and Kira to discuss their current plight. Sisko says that the Dominion has chosen the most perfect and opportune time to invade, as the major powers in the Alpha Quadrant have all been weakened and left defenseless. Sisko's only option is to seal the wormhole, which is met with severe resistance from Kira, as it would sever her people's ties with the Celestial Temple and the Prophets. Even Dax is gravely concerned that sealing the wormhole may spell certain doom for Worf and Garrick, as they will be trapped in the Gamma Quadrant. The clock is ticking to the tune of 36 hours. After that, the fate of the prophets, Worf, Garrick, and all those trying to escape the Alpha Quadrant will be sealed. Back in the prison barracks, Martok recounts how Tane was able to modify hidden life support systems in the wall spaces to send out that distress signal. Tane worked tirelessly to do so, months on end in fact. Suddenly, a Romulan prisoner informs them that a fellow inmate, a friend, is being released, and shortly after, a disheveled man wearing a Starfleet Sciences uniform is pushed through the door, and to Garrick and especially Worf's great surprise, it is Dr. Bashir. Act 5 After drawing blood with a shard of metal, Bashir proves, as much as any test can prove, that he is in fact the real Julian Bashir, who claims to have been abducted from his bed after a medical conference only to wake up in this prison. General Matak's tale is similar, as he too was abducted while hunting. One thing is clear, there is a changeling version of Dr. Bashir on Deep Space Nine, and Captain Sisko must be warned before its endgame is achieved. Back on Deep Space Nine, in Ops, O'Brien and Dax are in the final stages of modifying the transmitter array to seal the wormhole, as the Bashir changeling stops by to offer them some sandwiches, kneeling very close to the exposed emitter panels. Meanwhile, Dukat meets Ziel at the transport docking bay, only to discover that she's not leaving, and is as committed to keeping her promise to wait for Garrick as he was to her promising to return. Dukat is furious that Zial has chosen Garrick over him, that she has chosen his enemy over her own father. In the prison barracks, Martok tells Garrick and Bashir that Tane doesn't have much time left. Garrick goes to his bedside to be with his mentor one last time. Garrick reassures Tane that all of his enemies have been eliminated, which puts Tane at ease. However, Tane has one last request, for Garrick to escape the prison and live. But Garrick retorts with one last condition, that Tane's request doesn't come from a mentor or a superior officer, but from his father, from a father asking a son to live and to escape. And after exchanging one last brief and fond memory of them as father and son, after a small moment in time where Elim and Anabrin share one last emotional connection, Tane dies. With Garrick's business concluded, he, Worf, Bashir, and Martok redouble their efforts to find a way to escape. As Kira informs Captain Sisko that the last listening post has gone silent, everyone in Ops knows that the Dominion is one step away from emerging from the wormhole. 
Cisco orders O'Brien and Dax to engage the graviton emitters to seal it, and as they do, the emitter control panel explodes, to which the chief believes it has been sabotaged. And just as soon as it collapsed, closed, the wormhole opens once again, with waves of Jem'Hadar ships pouring out of it, to which Captain Sisko declares, Battle Stations. To be continued. Hey, right at the top of the show, when Kira is calling for Dax and Odo to come up to Ops, did it, did it, was it just a lucky guess that they were together? <laughs> I mean, did, did Kira leave Ops to say, hey, I'm going to go down and help Odo move all of his stuff back into his place? Because the, the call is Dax saying, Kira and Odo come to Ops. But, it, but they're like, it, that never happens unless those people are actually together. But there they are in somebody's quarters. It's just, you know, it was a weird thing clearly crafted for TV. You know? Well, they must have checked the, uh, the in-out pegboard in Ops. Right, there you to go. To see where Kira and Odo have checked out to. Yeah. Obviously, it was to sure. Odo's quarters to move. Yeah, yeah. clearly, clearly, <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, uh, I love how uh, Garrick takes a shot at Earl Grey. Here. He's just like, oh, if I ever That's meet so that funny. Earl Grey. Do you like Earl Grey? Are you an Earl Grey fan? <laughs> um, I actually drink uh, Bigelow's Earl Grey. I like yeah. that, you know, uh, flavor profile of Earl Grey, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes uh, the blends tend to be a little more on the spicy side. I like it to be a little bit more on the, uh, I guess, blander mm-hmm. side. Yeah, I, so. I get it. Some people just don't like the uh, the bergamot. They they it just uh, it ruins it for. I, I'm an occasional Earl Grey guy. Like when I want it, fantastic. But usually I just want like industrial strength black tea. Just you yeah. know, uh, as Professor Elemental says, uh, it is you know I want to see, I want it to be strong, so strong that a spoon will stand up in it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I want. When I when I want a glass of hot tea, I make myself coffee. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm there too. Yeah. Yeah. So here's a rule of thumb, not just for Deep Space Nine, but pretty much for anyone serving in Starfleet in the 24th century: mm-hmm. never, ever, ever leave an active pad lying around, ever, <laughs> because you never know who's going to pick it up. And you never know who's going to start reading where you left off. Yes. Because for some reason, we have iPads in 2020 that have biometric fingerprint locks. And Mm -hmm. in the 24th century, they can pick up pads and just start reading how to find your perfect mates for reasons. Right. And (laughs) and imagine, you know, the screen could go dark on its own. Like, that would be a helpful thing to have. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, here we are with the multiple pads for books. It's like, this pad has this one book on it. This pad has this one book on it. But out of the whole scene, I mean, poor Odo just resigned himself to the idea that romance is for solids. Odo, I believe in you, man. You still have those feelings, I can tell. Even if you're... That must be such a struggle, though, when you really think about the character... Mm -hmm. You can't just, you know, like Kirk said in five, you just can't wave away your pains with a magic wand. Right. You know, you can't just start shifting these emotional waves within you and say, oh, I think I'm attracted to this solid now because I'm a solid. No, I'm not because I'm a changeling. Right. So right. I'll just, you know, reconcile myself to that yeah. because I'm a changeling. It's rough. But one thing I did like, and and this is going to be explored a little bit more in, in the discussion points, sure. but I liked it when... Bashir, first of all, in the replimat, he's you can tell that he's a little uh, distrusting of what Garrick's saying. I think he always is now. Of course. 
But then in the runabout, he kind of whirls around. It's like, hello, Garrick. <laughs> yes. Where are you off to? Yes. In a very Bond style of fashion. Mm-hmm. But then again, why would a changeling know about his kind of um, his interest in spy genre and being yeah. a spy himself? Anyway, I'll get to that later. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think there's a lot <laughs> to unpack there with uh, the Bashir as not Bashir. But, but one very interesting and important element to all of this, uh, something that I did not put in my trivia, is that they did not know that that would be the reveal until this episode. Specifically, Sid, Alexander Siddig, did not know that that was coming. So until he got the script, and supposedly uh, Bashir has been gone now for uh, over a month, that he was just playing him as Bashir. So, yeah, this was a a big surprise to a lot of people. Uh, By the way, speaking of Garrett getting to that runabout, it really seems easy to steal a runabout from DS9. I oh, mean, yeah. you know, uh, Bashir, quote unquote, Bashir was just there with uh, a phaser. So he just he got on board and had he not been there, Garrick was just ready to go. You just, mm-hmm. you, you know, go up, punch a few buttons and you're gone. And anytime a ship comes in or leaves, everybody in ops is like, there goes a ship. Here comes a ship. And then if it's stolen, like, please come back. Oh, they're getting too far away now you know it just seems incredibly easy to do that i mean you would think if there weren't some type of authorization code that has to get punched in so that they can leave kind of like the 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 orbit of the station right. that the runabout was just right it would like the engines would stall or they would stop or there would be a tractor beam or something i guess right? they figure in the 24th century on the station like look if we're gonna leave our cheesy romance novels laying around we might as well just let all the shuttles be open for everybody, too. And I don't put any blame on Garrett. Garrett can pretty much do as he pleases. I don't think that... He can. I don't yeah. think he prepares for anything. I think he's always prepared for something. Yeah. Yeah, that right. is yeah. true. He has, his, he has his pregnancy, you know, rushed to the hospital overnight bag, yeah. packed and ready to go with decryption devices, torture devices, translators, money, He's always passports. got a plan. Yeah. 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 He, he has his emergency bag for sure. Yeah. Uh, one thing I thought was super cool, I think we've seen this used before, but so I'm a, I'm a sword fighter mm-hmm. and there are occasions where I have to sharpen my, my razor sharp steel swords to do cutting competitions and things of that mm-hmm. nature. And, you know, I have to use the traditional, you know, um, uh, standing belts and things of that, you know, like all those type of tools, which are really cumbersome, big and expensive. I want Worf's laser sharpening. <laughs> that was so I cool. I want that so badly. And he's yeah. just like... Yes, this is going to chop the heads off of many gem hadar yes, in my way. Yes, it, you know, it, just rubbing it back and forth. Yeah, like, that's so although good. it was a little sloppy with it at some point. So you have to assume that whatever that beam is coming out of that thing just knows to sharpen steel and not like slice through a finger or but, cheese or cheese. It, it, it could make for a great cheese could be. slicer. Yeah, it you would. never know. It would. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, breeze so soft, yeah. you really need a sharp knife. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a funny thing. Now, I know that I do poke a lot of fun at the, the technology being used at the time. You know, we're talking 1997, I believe right. this is. Yeah. And we have pads that only can hold one file and these uh, isolinear rods that hold Worf's Klingon operas. And it's a great way of having Dax go to his, first of all, opens his drawer, right. which Worf is like, what are you doing? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and then secondly, here are all of your precious operas and they're mine. Yeah. And, and you know, Worf being the male chauvinist Klingon that he is, he's like, 
you know, you might lose one of those because you're a woman. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, but, it, but she plays to it. She's like, yeah, you better come home or I might lose one. They don't have data storage in, you know, in the 24th century or they didn't think of like uh, some type of ethereal data storage cloud or some type right. of biometric device that could just house data. You'd think that in the future, everybody gets at least like, you know, 100 gigabytes of free cloud space. You would think. You oh, would yeah. think, you know, but it, but maybe Worf just kicks it old school. Maybe he just loves his physical media. Like those data devices, they could be like 50 or 100 years old. I, I bet if you went back home to the Rajinkos, he's got a closet full of laser discs. That's, <laughs> that's his thing. You know? So like in 24th century Facebook, there's a picture of an isolinear rod and it says, if you know what this is, you had a great childhood. Yes, <laughs> precisely. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know, um, and, and from a directional standpoint, I really did like when Goldicott had Garrick bent over the top railing because you could see in the background, out of focus, the entire crowd kind of ooing and aahing and pointing like they're watching it happen live, which they were, but you don't expect to see that type of real-time honest reaction from the background crowd. Right, right. Now, that, that is a good shot. And, um, and, and I, I love that something about DS9 where they really go that extra mile. You, just, you have a density of people in these very interesting, very photogenic sets. So it, it feels populated. It, it's really mm -hmm. awesome. And there was another, since you're mentioning kind of filming details here, there was another thing that I really liked, and it was relatively minor, but I love that scene of Dukat trying to get Zial to leave DS9. It shot well, and the audio mix is great because you, you see and hear people moving around in the background, and it just felt like a scene from a war movie. It really mm -hmm. did. And clearly either uh, the, the director, um, Gabrielle Beaumont, or, or other people on the staff had in mind these great scenes from these World War II movies of, you know, you've got to get out of here before they come over that line. No, I'm not leaving without you. You have to leave. You know, it was just right. brilliant. Yeah. The only thing that was really missing was like the, I guess, the, the station-wide klaxon saying, you know, mm -hmm. invasion is imminent. You know, you have to leave, but I can't. I love him. <laughs> right. But you have to. Right. Yes. You know? It was so good. I mean, it was very Casablanca-esque. Yeah. yeah. You know, towards the end. Yeah. You know, you, you'd look at the, the cut saying, like, you know, with Kira in his arms, you know, like, it doesn't matter. Like, I've, every, you know, it doesn't matter. Anything that we've done so far doesn't amount to a hill of beans right. in this crazy world. <laughs> right. <laughs> very much so. Uh, why do all the nebulas in Star Trek look like the very beginning of the entrance into the Mutara, <laughs> Mutara Nebula sequence in Wrath of Khan. Because it is. Yes. Because it yes, is. They, yeah. they use that same footage and it's so great. Uh, maybe, maybe that's the thing, you know, as our generation of humans get further out into the stars, maybe as we get closer to Nebula, we'll be just like, yeah, I guess they all look the same. <laughs> you know? There's a Nebula. Uh, there's another there's one. A nebula. Yeah. You know, it, um, you know, it'd be sad though to, to be out there amongst the stars to be exploring and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, there's another gaseous anomaly that we got to log. Yeah, uh, right. You know, here's another solar flare. Nah, For that to be boring. Yeah. yeah. Leave that to third shift or fourth shift if you're <laughs> Angelico's ship. Right. Um, so, Worf, we've, we have both agreed that he is the best one-line deliverer yes. like, in the history of Star Trek. Yes. And in this episode, I was dying. I was laughing so hard when, he, when Cisco said, you know, watch Garrick, make sure he comes back. And Worf says, at the first sign of betrayal, I will kill him. But I promised to return the body intact. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
I was done. That was so good. And and then yeah. and, and Cisco even asked him, like, I don't know if you're joking. <laughs> you know? We shall see. Yes. <laughs> so good. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And uh speaking of Worf, look, I, I love it how Garrick knows you just you drop the H word to get Worf to do whatever you want. You mm-hmm. you just drop the honor word and then boom, he he's putty in your hands. Okay, so Worf says I'll be violating my captain's orders. I'll be violating Starfleet protocol. I'll be putting ourselves in danger. We may die if we do what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Ooh, ooh, ooh. But it's the honorable but honor. thing to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As much as I do love War's line, and I do, I thought it was hilarious. Yep. The best burn, though, the sickest burn yep. was between Dukat and Kieran when Dukat said, about Garrick, the man is a heartless, cold-blooded killer. And Kira said, like I said, he's a Cardassian. Yes. Wow. Without missing a beat. Yes. Great writing. So Just good. Just the timing was perfect. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and kudos to them because, like, you, you start writing those words. It's just like, we can't not have this in the script. It's perfect. It's so perfect. Mm-hmm. I loved in this episode, I don't know why, just every time they cut to that exterior shot of the asteroid prison, I loved it. It was so Buck Rogers. I just mm-hmm. absolutely loved it. It's a great looking model, and it just seems like the kind of thing that would be in a 70s uh, space show. So that was super cool. Even when it went to the interior, and you have that fighting ring that uh, Martok is in, and it's sort of gold raised above the ground a little bit with the big bright lights on it. I was just like, that that looks like a very Glenn Larson production right there, but in the best possible way. Didn't take me out of this at all. Yeah, totally. The asteroid reminded me of, I think it was like the, the villain's asteroid ship in Jason of Star Command. Yeah, man, Sid Haig. He, right? he was uh, Draco in that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That was his spot. Yeah. So nice little callback there, a little nice of touch of nostalgia. Speaking mm-hmm. of a touchback, uh, I really did like that they brought back Lenar Khan's technology yes. into this show. Right. I just, I love it when these little threads are just uh, reconnected, like in future episodes, so that it makes the world building consistent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this episode does a great job of that with the small threads and the big threads. So th- this was mm-hmm. a small detail that didn't have to be in there, but I'm glad it's in there. And then, of course, just the very fact that you're following up on these bigger stories like with Tane, like Tane could have been dead. You could have just mm-hmm. left it that way and that would have been fine. But, oh, it, it's so much richer to actually follow that story. And another thread that I really like, and that's a nice detail, especially when it comes to kind of like the Klingon culture, was when Martok said that he was hunting in Kang's summit. Now, I, we have to believe that that summit or that area, that hunting ground was named after Kang, you know, the legendary yes. Michael Ansara's character from Day of the Dove. Right. Yeah, that was awesome. So, but probably the one detail that really was just on point, and I'm glad that they didn't gloss over it like, you know, all uniforms just changed all of a sudden because when they put Bashir back into the prison cell and he was wearing the old Starfleet uniform, that was a nice touch. It was appropriate. It had to be done that way because now you realize he was abducted, you know, months ago when they were still wearing the old uniforms pre-first contact. Yeah, that was a great continuity detail. I I will say that there is one, there is one tell about, changeling Bashir that I did not like so first of all it was a very clever choice to make and and clearly Mm, they just sort mm. of like invented it to go along with this episode we don't know how early exactly they had come up with the idea but they left Sid in the dark about it 
but the thing that I didn't like, as soon as the audience knows, then the show itself knows. So you cut to the next shot of Bashir, changing Bashir in the yeah. turbo lift, giving a sinister smile to himself. Yes. I, now, yes. is that what a changeling would do? No, because that changeling is basically on duty right now as Bashir doing everything that Bashir would do as Bashir to not get caught. So that I thought was a little cheesy. I would not have directed it that way. Thank you very much. I would have just said like, okay, you you are for all intents, you are Bashir because right. you have been playing this as Bashir. Don't give a tell to the audience. Basically, it was one of those um, unfortunate fourth wall breaks where yeah. they cut to that scene right after the Bashir on the planet said, I wonder what my counterpart is doing on the station. Yep. And then it's the inside joke through the fourth wall yeah. that is keyed off of, ha, 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 I'm the evil Bashir. Right. And now you know I am because of this smile that I just got queued up to serve. Yeah, yeah that, that was really unfortunate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, hey, not a lot of food in this episode, but those did look like some tasty pastrami sandwiches that fake Bashir had. I thought they were pastrami too. <laughs> it was That's the bread. So it, it was the bread. You see that you immediately associate pastrami. May not have been. May not have been at all. But that is what popped in my head. I'm glad it popped into your head too. W- were you thinking pumpernickel or rye? Rye. Rye, yeah. of course. And if we had it in HD, we would see the seeds. No, it was <laughs> exactly. rye. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the movie The Thing, the John Carpenter yes. remake of The Thing. Oh, yeah. And the blood test is legendary because it literally to this day makes me still jump out of my seat. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that they adopted a little bit of that into, uh, it was like, I think the season three episode, the season three finale when they were, everyone was testing mm-hmm. blood to see if there was changeling gelatinous form. Right. But I guess like when you're in a prison planet and you have to make that test stick and prove like without a shadow of a doubt that you're not a changeling, you don't have to worry about disinfecting things, right? You just, take a piece of raw metal and slice yourself open and say, yep, I'm bleeding. I, you know what? I, if that doesn't kill him, I'm sure the prison food would. Thank you for calling the Jim Hadar Welcoming Committee. We are experiencing a high volume of calls right now. A boarding party will be with you shortly. Face protection is strongly recommended. We will continue in Purgatory Shadow in just a moment. But first, a quick word and a shout out to all of our followers on Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash mission log. Norman, I have to say, we we have a different kind of discussion with our followers at Patreon. Um, It's wonderful to check in with everybody at Facebook and Twitter. And certainly we get wonderful, thoughtful emails from our listeners Patreon's a little bit different, though. It feels a little more, as you've always put it, a community. Mm -hmm. And I think that is one of those key things that really drives our participation in Mission Log. One of the things that I really like about the Patreon format and and something that has been, it was something new to me because I've never worked in a situation where, at least on a podcast situation, where I had a, a Patreon community to be a part of and to work with and to grow with is the the friendships and the camaraderie that has been built up over all this time, especially since I've been on here. And Mm. the community aspect is so important now since we have been 
uh, deprived of going to conventions or meeting in person or being able to have weekends with friends and discuss Star Trek one-on-one, face-to-face, over dinner, over drinks. I think it's more important now than ever to, to make sure that these communities continue to thrive and grow because it allows us not just to talk about Star Trek or to talk about science fiction or what happened in your day. It allows us to stay in communication with other people where the human species as a race thrives on community building. And without community building, a lot of uh, unfortunate things happen. Mental things happen. Depression happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, soli- you know, uh, Solitude happens. And these aren't good things for us. So being able to, to be a part of a community like this is so important, so special, and I'm so grateful that, that we have the people in our Patreon community that support us. So one of the great things about being there, if you choose to join us, again, patreon.com slash mission log, uh, not only the monthly hangouts that we do where we just we hop on, it's a live video chat, no no real structure to it. It's just a hangout, and, it, and it's so lovely to get to know people and have everybody get to know us. Uh, but there's also the unedited, unexpurgated, <laughs> behind-the-scenes video of all of our recording sessions where we sometimes give you a little heads up of what's coming down the pike for Mission log so join us there you can join for as little as a dollar at patreon.com slash mission log all right norman here we go we have an episode with a lot happening and you know sometimes we we try to make that judgment call about uh putting together a two-parter into one mission log and sometimes it sort of escapes us this one i'm really glad that we kept separate from the other one because even though as a story they they are definitely you know, two pieces, two halves of a whole. I feel like there's a lot happening in this episode. Um, a lot where there are characters happening in this episode that needs to get picked apart. Mm-hmm. So the way that we have our notes structured, I, I'm really, I, I want you to take the lead here because man, oh man, I, I think you did what I was hoping to do, which is to break down by character. And then I've, uh, I've got some stuff to chime in here about uh, how that affected me as well. So uh, you want to start with Bashir? Sure. So I because <laughs> man, <laughs> Bashir or not Bashir? That is the yeah. question, to be sure. Interesting thing about how they introduced the changeling Bashir. I, I think it is interesting. At the same time, it is incredibly problematic from a logic standpoint because changelings have been known to obviously change shapes. They can change shapes. They can take mm-hmm. forms. They can assume people's likenesses, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they completely co-opt their identity, their intelligence, their nuances. So when Bashir, being on the station as long as he was, Bashir the changeling, that is, how do you explain away his ability to behave and to to go about his daily business as a medical professional if that changeling can only change shapes. Yeah. So that that is a huge problem with this. And you could try to you could try to retcon it and say, like, okay, well the changeling was there already in a different form for a long time, studied Bashir, maybe changelings are smart enough to read medical journals because look, we know that this Bashir was or the real Bashir was gone before the episode Rapture, remember where Cisco is having these visions from uh, the wormhole aliens mm-hmm. and 
thinking that he's, you know, connected to uh, Bajorian spirituality. And he has a brain procedure done by Dr. Bashir yeah. to make sure he doesn't die from all these visions that he's getting. So right. that fake Bashir, Changeling Bashir, was good enough to do that in the place of the real Bashir. So there's a pretty big stretch there. The other thing that I find interesting is, well, uh, just the mechanics of it all, the clothing, the uniform. So what happens? Somebody, somebody comes up to Changeling Bashir, hey, look, we just got the new uniforms from Starfleet. Here's yours. Oh, check it out. It's got the new gray shoulder piece. And oh, you're going to look fantastic in it. And he goes, thanks. Then he has to walk away someplace, hide, and and sort of take the form because the uniform is the part of the changeling. You don't think he would just wear the uniform? I I don't think. I mean, Odo didn't. Odo until Odo was a solid. Everything that was Odo was also the uniform and everything else. Yeah, it's a weird thing. So it's a, it's yeah, a weird thing. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's weird so, because it's inconsistent. Yeah. Yeah, the, the only time that we have seen Odo wear clothes is, uh, you know, obviously when he uh, when he flew off as the Tarkelian hawk mm-hmm. at the end of the Begotten, because he transforms and the clothes are left on the floor. Right. Every other time that Odo has transformed into or out of any other uh, body, and particularly one that had clothes, well, the clothes are part of the transformation. Right, and I think that he wouldn't so, wear the yeah. uniform because if he needed to hide or change shape... Or if he was going to get caught doing something or being somewhere he shouldn't be, he could just transform. And if he did, wearing an actual yeah. uniform, that would be obviously a clue. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, it's kind of a fun but weird thing that I, I, like, I think the fun of it is that because we have the changeling as characters, I'm sure that the writers from a very early point said, you know, we could just slip out one of our characters at any time and make them a changeling. Mm-hmm. And that's cool that they had that ability to do it. And we've seen them do it with, you know, guest stars, obviously, right. but the fact that you could do that with one of our main characters is awesome. Bashir is as good a choice as any, but then Bashir also has these abilities like being able to save people's lives. Well, not only that, I mean, you know, he, he has obviously all of the medical um, mm-hmm. the medical uh, jargon that's in his mm-hmm. brain. Uh, you yeah. know, uh, everything that he's learned from Starfleet, all the Starfleet protocols, all the databases, everyone that he needs to contact in order to save Cisco's brain, you know, from right. those, that neural uh, impulse, and all the codes that he needs in order to access all that information. You know, plus, yeah. he's really working closely with people, especially Miles and Keiko and Kira during a pregnancy, any slip-up of his performance, especially for Miles, because they're best friends, would be a complete tell that this isn't Julian. Right. So, right. Yeah. I mean, aside from everything else that he needs to balance, I think personally that in order to subvert the audience's expectations, it should have been a character that we would have least suspected that had the most access to the station. And you know who I would have loved to have seen? Mm-hmm. Rom. Ooh. Right? That would have been very interesting. Because yes. he he yes. has access to everything on the station, especially when it comes to all of the 
the vital areas, the engineering yeah. sections of the station. He could have shut down anything he wanted, and since he's so innocuous as a character, no one would have noticed that he was gone. Right. And no one talks right. to Rom. He's on the, you know, I mean, he's on the morning shift now, but no one really talks to him from a command level perspective. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like that in Red October. It was the cook, the, the goddamn cook. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that's something that I'm sure that we can explain away. And I'm sure the writer said, well, you know what, we'll just go with it because it yeah. just, yeah. maybe we'll get forgiven for it later on. Sure. It works. One yeah. of the things that I didn't see coming, though, uh, in this episode mm-hmm. was how strong uh, some of the real-time dynamic uh, dynamics were in terms of interpersonal relationships with parents and children. Yes. The scene where Dakot and Kira are in the replimat, well, basically where Dakot interrupts Kira's one moment of quiet during the day, mm-hmm. it almost felt like I was sitting at a friend's dinner table with two parents arguing and you have that stereotypical someone slaps someone across the face awkwardness because they're talking about and arguing about their children. Yeah. Right. 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 Because Dukat says, you don't know what she needs. And Kira's like, you don't know your daughter. These parents were like toxic divorced parents screaming at each other, like in a restaurant. You know, yeah. and I didn't yeah. see that come. I didn't think that this episode was about that. Well, and I was glad that they dropped in at least uh, a brief moment of Kira talking about the O'Brien's child, Kira Yoshi, mm-hmm. because we left on that kind of, you know, not not somber, but a little sad moment of her at the end of The Begotten um, feeling separated from this child that she carried. And here she is a little happier saying, uh, oh, but but the baby recognizes me because the baby was a part of me, <laughs> you know? So th- that was an interesting scene to have. We're expressing that, that motherly and really connected part of Kira. So then to contrast it with this scene where, where you're like, okay, now here's the mama bear coming out. Mm-hmm. Like, let me tell you about this daughter who I have invested my, my care and concern for while you're out there in a, uh, in a stolen Klingon bird of prey, right. <laughs> you know, um, I, I thought it was a, a great moment. It was informative about both of them. And it really, it, it also helps to add depth to Zia mm-hmm. and her journey. Yes, absolutely. The only thing that kind of bugged me about that scene with Kira and Dax is why was Dax griefing her so hard about it? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dax, you think would be a little more um, sympathetic? I don't know. Maybe it was just yeah. another personality because Dax was a mom at one point in time. Yeah, you know. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. The other thing that I found interesting about this episode, and again, with the name in Purgatory's Shadow, and we're going to get to that mm-hmm. breakdown later yeah. on, I did not expect probably the most significant, I guess, the most significant um, relationship in this episode, which. I, I thought this episode was just going to be about a big space battle and a big, like you said, mm-hmm. like the great escape type of, you know, yeah. um, soldiers uh, trying to find a way to get off this asteroid. But mm-hmm. it's it's the abusive relationship between Garrick and Anabrintain. That, to me, com- it, it really did catch me completely off guard because we are looking at 
something that is relevant and real. And I have, I have been exposed to it, not personally, but I have seen friends that have been subject to this abusive type of relationship where they never measure up and they try so hard and put so much of themselves at risk to measure up to a person who doesn't deserve it, who doesn't deserve their affection or doesn't reciprocate that affection. And what kind of struck me funny and made more sense towards the end was why Garrick would risk so much to save this man whom in previous episodes we've only seen give him grief. And knowing now that Cain is his father, even though towards the end there was a very powerful scene that, that can be construed in different ways, the only person that would come to his rescue would be his own son. It, it yeah. wouldn't be a protege. It wouldn't be uh, someone who he's trained and disciplined and, and conditioned to, to do his bidding. It would have to be the obligation of a son trying to find a way to connect with his father still and try to um, impress upon him that he has worth and value if he went through all these lengths to risk himself to save him, that to me was like, yep, that's the abusive relationship. Yeah. You know, I mentioned uh, Judy class in the trivia as the one who came up with that idea that, oh, we have to maintain Garrick's father. And, and it serves so many purposes. It also reveals a, a great deal about Garrick. Here is somebody who constantly deflects and deceives, but everything about that, I mean, yes, Cardassians do that. Cardassians lie very often, but specifically, we're talking about this Cardassian. This is somebody who was raised with the idea that he has to deny his own father because he is denied by his own father. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible bit of psychology to play with when you look at, oh, of course, if we have sympathy for Garrick, here's why we do, because from day one, here is this strained, horrible, and as you say, abusive relationship between these two. There is a line here. A line that is preceded by a terrible line uh, when when Tane says, uh, I should have slit your mother's throat before you were born. But he says to Garrick, you have always been a weakness I can't afford. Mm -hmm. Just to me, one of the saddest, coldest lines I've ever heard. Totally in character. Totally believable here because of the places that these characters have gone. But again, it just informs so much about Garrick, and you can extrapolate that to other Cardassians. If, you know, other Cardassians clearly are raised in this strange culture uh, where, where lying and subterfuge are just part of, part of life all the time. But it, it's interesting, it, it serves this idea uh, because... Everything that is in Star Trek is metaphor. It is something for us to reflect on as humans, just showing us the the absolute bankruptcy of a society that completely absorbs and internalizes paranoia and subterfuge. Like that, that's where you get, that's where you land. Garrick is so interesting, and like so many of the other very complex characters that DS9 gives us, they keep playing with the audience's ability to be 
deeply sympathetic but also distrustful <laughs> and see the dangerous sides of these characters as well. Mm. You know, Jakat has a bit of that. Garrick has a lot of that. When Garrick is having that heart-to-heart with Zial, he's he is pushing her away for many good reasons. And then he, in a playful way, he lies about his intention to join Starfleet, you know, in that scene with Worf. Just because, mm-hmm. because he, he needs to lie. It's what keeps him going, right? right? So he keeps these lies and truths bouncing around all over the place. And then finally, he has this ultimate heart-to-heart with his father while Bashir is in the room. Yes. That, that, what an interesting choice to do that. Is this the one person that Garrick can truly open up to, even though Garrick has deceived and deflected Bashir all the time, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, leading up to this. It, 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 it's just, it, it reveals all this complexity of what is happening in Garrick's head and how even through all this obfuscation, there's still maybe a shred of sincerity and some emotional core to him. It's truly what makes him one of the great characters of, of Star Trek. Now, now, that doesn't mean that he and other Cardassians don't, take advantage of that the fact that there is an emotional core there but it is there mm-hmm. it is there yeah and you know i want to i want to kind of um dovetail on what you said about about what tain said in when he said that uh, you mm-hmm. you have always been a weakness i can't afford you can see ducat saying that to zial at some point in time yes yes and maybe yeah. that's just the way that the cardassian culture is because later on Garrick kind of uh, emulates that same sentiment when he's talking to Dr. Bashir when he says sentiment is the greatest weakness of all. That's Tane's influence on Garrick. Mm-hmm. And it's not that, you're right, it's not that Garrick is unemotional or Vulcan has purged all emotion in favor of logic, but he is making a strong case that sooner or later emotional manipulation through sentimentality will lead you to make decisions that may or may not be the best decision of the time, but that's the decision you make because you have been emotionally manipulated. And we saw that between Garrick and Tane. And Tane throws that in Garrick's face, saying that your sentimentality made you fail this mission. If you succeeded, we would have escaped. But you were captured, which means you have failed. And Garrick said, what about a thank you? And Tane's like, Thank you for what? For failing? Wow. That was powerful. So that's, mm, you know, that's, again, from the very start of this episode, I did not see this, the gravitas of this particular real-world emotional model come into play at all. I just, I didn't know why that... uh, it caught me so off guard, but it really did. I, I want to tie that just very briefly to to something that I felt was a little a, a little unexplored in this episode, uh, because that that sentimentality being a weakness, I th- I thought also is a thread that you could look at in the Dax and Worf relationship. Mm-hmm. I thought that was actually one of the weaker spots here. I didn't love their scenes together, and I really wanted to. 
especially after the debacle of let he who is without sin. <laughs> but I thought the opportunity was there in those scenes, but maybe they weren't fleshed out to their fullest. I, I get that Dax is worried about Worf, but even in that one argument that they had when she comes in to take his uh, Klingon operas, I, I didn't get the depth of it in the subtext. The emotion I felt wasn't there. Yeah. He's trying to get her to not be too sentimental, probably because it would play with his head as he goes off on this dangerous mission. And he's also trying to protect her in his weird Klingon way. But I, I felt like there was a setup there for something that didn't really work. And don't get me wrong, an otherwise excellent episode. But that was another place where that similar thread could have been played a bit more and, and it just didn't quite land. Well, I think what they were trying to do, at least in that particular scene, was to add to the the already established upon the trope of this abusive relationship between people. Because in my opinion, I think that Worf and Dax's relationship is somewhat abusive to a point. Not physically abusive, not necessarily mentally abusive, mm -hmm. but like emotionally abusive in a way. Because mm -hmm. Worf wants Dax to treat him like a Klingon warrior. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. You know, you have to accept that I'm a Klingon warrior. You have to toe the line emotionally that I'm a Klingon warrior. And you have to adopt to the culture, my culture, without fail, without question. And as we saw, there is little to no acceptance of who she really is. Exactly. On his, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where kind of like yeah. the, the non-reciprocation of this, of this relationship mm -hmm. comes into play in this scene. Because everything is about what Worf wants and really nothing yeah. about what Dax wants. And all yeah. Dax really wants Worf to do is to respect her part in this relationship. That's it. Just, yep. you know, give me a heads up that you're going on a dangerous mission. Let's talk about it. Worf's like, no, I don't have to. You're my Parmakai. You just aren't supposed to do as the Parmakai does. Right. That's abusive, in my opinion. That, to me, is, yes, they didn't execute that scene entirely, you know, as well as other scenes in this episode, which kind of diminishes the episode just a little bit. But mm -hmm. I can see where they're going with that, because every single, especially in, in uh, Let He Is Without Sin, Every single time that we see these two together, it's always about what Worf wants out of it and never yeah. respects what Dax wants out of it. Cringe. The cringe meter just, <laughs> just went off the, off the rails. Yeah. Um, one of the last things, though, I, I thought that was really interesting that, that I wanted to point out was the religious aspect of or the, the, the religious um, intonation of what sealing the wormhole would mean. And... Mm -hmm. So Cisco is not only the commander of Deep Space Nine, as we know, we also know that he is the emissary of the prophets of the Majoran people. Right. And Kira puts up a fairly strong argument saying that if you seal off the wormhole, you will seal off the prophets, the celestial temple, and basically the Bajoran people's access to their religion and to their belief system. But Cisco is the speaker of their belief system so why wouldn't Kira at least give him that much credit to say, maybe this is the will of the prophets as well? Like Kai Wynn would have said that whatever Cisco decides is the will of the prophets. But there's, it felt like there was some doubt in that when Kira says, if you do this, you are going to destroy Bajoran culture. Yeah, and which easily Cisco goes, oh, well, maybe the prophets want you to 
pick yourselves up and live on your own without relying on your proximity to the prophets and the wormhole. You know, I mean, there's the logic there doesn't hold because you simply can't arrive at a correct conclusion Mm -hmm. if the answer is always that's what the prophets want because it always is going to be based on well what i strongly believe Mm -hmm. and when when you come down to it between what kira strongly believes and what cisco strongly believes kira will have to defer at some point to the emissary because he's the emissary even if she raises a strong objection too bad well exactly that's that is religion in and of itself. And, you know, we have, we have made our critique about that. But if you're taking the, the Bajoran religious culture allegorically as, say, religious cultures of our time, most religious cultures, if not all of them, believe in the, in the, the, the paradox of fate, meaning that right. everything that we are doing right now has been in accordance to some plan. So whatever Cisco is doing as the emissary, he's not just a man. He is the physical yep. embodiment of their prophet. Whatever he chooses or decides must be the will of her gods. Therefore, yep. why put up the argument in the first place? It's a rare episode of Deep Space Nine that makes Worf look like he's not the worst dad in the Alpha Quadrant. And yet here we are. In Purgatory's Shadow, in Mission Log, in the fourth act. Well, that's where we are now. And uh, time to wrap it all up and talk about what held up, maybe what didn't, what are the morals, meanings, messages. But before that, Norman, I'm going to ask you, well, obviously, if you think the episode holds up, but um, also to tell us a little bit about the title, how that ties into the episode. So uh, what did you think? Uh, how does it all hold up? Oh, I get to say this on on radio for the first time yeah. it's time for the title game yeah i actually do think this episode holds up incredibly well i think that the messages in this episode uh, as we say in mission log they do stand the test of time because as you have heard in our previous segments on the discussion that some of the emotional beats and some of the uh, real world dynamic emotional messages are in fact things that we see on a daily basis, you know, if we are exposed to that in our normal lives. And I think that with our broad audience, I think there are people out there that would agree that abusive relationships are still a real threatening issue to many people out there, men, women, children alike. And I think that that is so perfectly interweaved in this episode of which, again, that dynamic is something that I didn't expect out of an episode that said, in Purgatory's Shadow. I was thinking that this would be the buildup, and it is to some degree, of this great space battle that was going to happen and a rescue mission that in some way would affect the outcome of that battle. But it was something very different, very emotional, and very specific, and we'll get that, I'll get to that later mm. um, in, in my morals and meanings and messages. But let's talk about the the title yeah because it's time for the title game yeah so we usually pull the definitions of certain aspects of the title from uh, online this came from the merriam-webster dictionary and the definition of purgatory and then comes in two parts part one is an intermediate state after death for 
expiatory purification, specifically a place or state of punishment wherein, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, the souls of those who die in God's grace may make satisfaction for past sins and so become fit for heaven. That's part the first. Mm -hmm. Part the second is a place or state of temporary suffering or misery. And I do believe that more of the second fits in with what we have seen in this episode than, say, the first because as it applies to the title, I see this most directly related to Garrick's state of being before and after Tane's death, especially the moment where Garrick and Tane share that one pure, decent memory that they had of each other, and then Garrick returns back to this place or state of temporary suffering or misery. And in many ways, we can take purgatory here for atonement, in a way, since Tane's final words were as, as close to an act of contrition as a man like him could muster knowing he was about to die in front of his estranged son. So how did you mm. feel about about the definition here as it applies to the episode? Yeah, I mean, I, I could also see it as literally like the place where they are, this, this asteroid planet. The, this is this state mm. of limbo or purgatory where they, they are just as good, dead, or alive. Like, they, they are cut off from everything. They don't know what their fate holds. They're just there existing until something happens. You know, lucky for Martok, well, this is a change of things. There are these new people there. But there's no guarantee that these new people will even get him out. So that's why we have to stay tuned for next week. But yeah, I really it's felt a- like the, the physical location was this purgatory for these characters. So, John, are you saying that the alternate title for this episode would be in Schrodinger's box. Is that <laughs> yeah, what yes. You're yes. Yeah. It, it, in Schrodinger's uh, holding cell uh, guarded <laughs> by Jim Hadar. Yeah. I look, you know, I, I agree with you as far as this episode holding up. Um, I really like the journey here. And I, I realize that, you know, we have another episode to go before we can truly assess it and land on morals, meanings, messages. But there is just so much here in this one by itself. The only downside that I see to this episode is that you can look at it as a bit of a soap opera. There are so many dramatic reveals packed into one episode. Martok is alive and Abrantade is alive and he's Garrick's father and Bashir is a changeling. It's just like one after another after another. As far as production value goes it is excellent um i can't remember which episode it was last season that i got some pushback from a listener because i pointed out that the production value on that particular one uh, you know the the film quality was poor uh the the overall production value was poor and it hurt the episode's ability to stand up and that was not a slight on the people who made it it just happened to be the end result you know where that episode landed so that that was that that's just happens to be what it was this one though seemed to be produced shot transferred and that's it, 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 even starting out with all these great actors and this great script everything pulled together perfectly well the colors were solid the details were crisp the film grain was really nice I know we're not likely to get DS9 in a true HD format, but this episode really stood out among recent entries as technically superb. So I just want to point that out, that this was so good uh, in that respect as well. Um, 
what about messages here? I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about character. We've talked about relationship. Are there messages or is that really where you're leaning for this one? Well, I mean, I did mention it several times before that this episode really subverted my expectations. And what I love about this episode is what it isn't, mm-hmm. meaning that it's not what it is or what I, what I thought it was going to be. It's what it isn't, meaning that I went into this thinking that it would be this prison breakout story, uh, like The Great Escape, as you mentioned before, uh, in trivia. And it's kind of like the against all odds rescue tale mm-hmm. of, you know, a breakout story and, you know, uh, being able to win against all odds and get to the finish line at the end and save the day. It was the quieter moments that really won me over and subverted my expectations. And this episode for me, this episode is about broken children and broken parents. And I know that that may be a stretch for some thinking about it, but this is how it landed for me, specifically with Tane and Garrick and Dukat and Zial, those relationships. Mm. Garrick is an expert liar. Why? Because he has perfected his craft over time as he expertly illustrated to Worf with the Starfleet Academy uh, filibustering. Because he has perpetuated the one lie he's even convinced himself of, that Cain, that Tain, his father, cares for him as much as Garrick cares for Tain. And it's simply not true. Right. And we see this all the time in real-world examples of children never experiencing or reaching their own fullest potential or their own best version of their lives because they've always been trying to live up to this manufactured, mentally manufactured expectation of their parent or parents. Children that don't come out, children that don't adopt their own sexuality, children that don't become the virtuoso musician or the artist or the exemplary student or the athlete but they try and put themselves at so much risk, both personally and emotionally to do so because they want to reach and establish uh, this bond, manufactured or otherwise, to a parent that does not reciprocate. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I did not expect from a Star Trek episode that started off with this title. Zial in many ways is the same way. She's trying to please both Dukat and Kira, but at least, at least she, she took her stand in this episode and chooses her own happiness. But what did she get in return? Resentment from Dukat and basically saying that you can stay on this station and wait for Garrick and you can burn for all I care. Yeah. Stay here and be damned. And be damned. So she's being disavowed by her own father who originally left her and her mother to a life of servitude and slavery as Bajoran uh, mistress and her and his bastard child. Yeah. No matter how hard he tried to justify it in indiscretions or later on, even now to Kira Dukat is trying to create the illusion and the honor of being a father and doesn't really understand what it takes to be a parent. Mm-hmm. No matter how hard he tries, no matter how much authority that he tries to Lord over the situation, all he is doing is trying to supplement the fact that he can say so, but it all backfires because he doesn't really have the emotional connection that he needs to be that parent. And I think he resents everybody 
in the world who does and offers that to ZL. So that's where this episode lands for me. And those are the messages I take away away from it. Yeah. I I mean, I I don't have a lot to add to that. Uh, This episode is really the culmination and, and designed to be that way. It was really Ira saying, okay, we need to wrap these things up. We need to get these characters sort of back on track, but it really is this just, a powerful punch of all these deep character complexities. And and as we've talked about in our discussion today, just layer upon layer of relationships, the, the depths of character that we have. Look, DS9 sometimes has a problem being the soap opera of Star Trek. But here's the thing. When those relationships pay off, they pay off with depth and, and a kind of honesty that we don't always get from the franchise as a whole. That is a real strength of the type of storytelling they do on this show. And it's definitely a strength of this episode in particular that definitely gives something to the audience who has stuck with it for as long as they have. Because as you've been introduced to these characters over time, as you've sort of been charmed by Garrick, as you've noticed maybe well, there, there's a, a glimmer of goodness in some of these characters like Ducat, then you get this episode that shows you, wow, there's, there's still more to go. There's still much more than just what we think of kind of on the surface of these characters. So it's just well done overall. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam! Shabam! And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, by Inferno's Light. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Hey, it's part one of a two-parter. Maybe I'll get a singing Jem'Hadar in the next one. Stay tuned. I'm not giving up on the dream. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.